joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store, if you feel inclined. Make sure to check it out. Our guest today is Dr. Kess Morton. Dr. Morton is the founder of Pisces Research Project Management Incorporated. She is a manager, scientist, and communicator, having over 20 years of management and research experience in industry, academia, and government. Dr. Morton's credentials include a PhD in marine ecology, project management professional certification, and a certificate in financial management. She uses these skill sets at the intersection of industry, academia, and government for the betterment of ocean research. She is deeply passionate about the oceans and Canada's role in ocean research and management. Dr. Morton was a key member of the strategic planning process with the Ocean Tracking Network. She developed strategies for numerous sub-projects and teams in her roles with Ocean Tracking Network, Aqua Biotech, and Merlinor. During her career, Dr. Morton has coordinated project teams in 20 different countries, totaling over 450 scientists and over 170 million Canadian dollars across academia, government, and industry. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Morton, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Happy to be here. Alrighty, so we'll hop right into some questions. You've embarked on quite a unique pathway to end up with quite a unique career, I think many would agree. I'm curious, first, as to what your PhD in marine ecology was investigating, and next, how that route led you to the role you play in the marine and fisheries science sector today. So my PhD was in a multi-species model of larval fish development. And I wouldn't say it led me to where I am today. I would say it was a stop along the way. So for me, I loved science from an early age and I loved business from an early age and I didn't really know which one I was going to study and pursue. And then I found out in my third year of my undergraduate that there was the business of science and I have been working towards that ever since. I feel like there's a huge pressure for students to pick sort of one or the other. So I think it's really cool that you managed to find the business of science or the sort of intersection between the two. So as a manager, a scientist, and a communicator, you wear a variety of different hats, you could say, in the world of fishery science, ocean-based research, and the marine sector at large. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of interdisciplinarity in fisheries management, especially when it comes to contemporary concerns that managers are facing today? Yeah, absolutely. I remember as a young scientist, I famously said to my then boyfriend, now husband, that I'm so glad I'm a scientist so that I don't have to deal with politics. Possibly the most wrong thing I've ever said in my life. So, you know, really, you have to wear a lot of hats because in order to accomplish the, the massive changes that we need to accomplish in order to, frankly, save our ocean, we really have to be working together. And the ability to bring together different skill sets and work with different people is the only way we're going to solve that, frankly. 
So Pisces Research Management talks about shaping the future of oceans by supporting visionary ideas, which I think is so cool. Could you tell us about some of your favorite past projects on both local and global scales? I have so many great projects and I'm so excited about so many of them. I would say one of the early projects that really was a gold star project in my books was a project that brought together scientists and First Nations and government and nonprofit and community members. And to me, that was a gold star project, setting that project up. And that was in partnership with the Ocean Tracking Network very early on in the company's life. Fast forward to today, when we are currently managing 16 different projects at Pisces Research Project Management in two different countries. And I would say that I am really excited. There's there's two that I get like really excited about. I shouldn't say that. You shouldn't have favorites. I love the work that we're doing right now with the Ocean Frontier Institute and Ocean Networks Canada and Ken Paul from the Lewis-Gawain Nation on Advancing Indigenous Partnerships in Ocean Science for Sustainability. That is a UN decade endorsed project and it just, it feels great that I love doing it and I love working with those people. But also on the flip side, in some ways, we've been really diving into how we can use data more to solve our ocean challenges. And so we've been having a lot of fun with a lot of really great partners on the Vitality Project, which if you Google Vitality at Pisces RPM, you can come up with the Vitality Project that is in partnership with the Canadian Integrated Ocean Observing System, the Supercluster, and a whack of other projects. And it is just so neat seeing how much data can support the solutions that we need in the ocean sector. That's incredible. I think it's so cool to hear about all these different groups and organizations coming together for the same sort of goal and with the same solutions in mind to these contemporary issues that we've sort of been discussing. And on that note, we've been talking a fair bit about technology and collaboration so far. And as collaboration is one of your biggest professional passions, I'm curious about your approach to science communication, both in the context of how you view the opportunity to bridge communities with high level scientific and political efforts, as we've talked about, and sort of how you think we can improve these pathways of communication. Uh, I'd love to talk about that. That's something that we've been doing a lot of deep thinking about, really the connection between data and design and SciComm. And we've been partnering with Barry Stevens of 3D Wave and Design and just so great looking at how you can really communicate complex ocean topics to people who need to make decisions. And that really is what it comes down to. And that really does require data design and SciComm in order, you have to have the data. Like we can't talk about anything if there's no data. Deep in my soul, I am a scientist. And so, you know, you can't talk about it if there's no information. And then you need to put that together in a way that allows us to communicate that so that the people who need to make decisions, be they community members or nursing home owners or, you know, people who are making international ocean policies, they need to be able to see that information and have that information in a way that is useful for them to make decisions. So we think about that a lot here. I love that. And I love the role that can sort of play in transparency with communities as well, because even if you're not sort of in a position to make decisions about this, people all over the world are affected in coastal communities and proximity to the ocean and ocean access. So I think communicating this science and this information, as you say, in data in a way that is digestible to the public is huge. And I love that there's so many initiatives that are sort of working on improving this. And here specifically to Atlanta, Canada, at least, 
Concepts like co-management and shared governance are holding more and more space in classrooms like mine, for example. I'm wondering if you can discuss with us some of the opportunities that you've had to collaborate in the context of co-management. I will quote Ken Paul here, who often starts off his presentations with the trick questions. So now you're prepared. Can everyone who is a treaty person raise their hand? And then he goes, you're all treaty people because we're all treaty people in Nova Scotia. And we really take that to heart at Pisces RPM. We really believe not only are we all treaty people, but also that if you're working with the ocean, you are definitely working with Indigenous partners. You just are. Whether you do it consciously or not is Mm -hmm. your choice. We choose to do it consciously. And so for us, it's about nurturing those relationships. It's about being a trusted partner and about respecting the position and authority that our partners have in the co-management. A lot of what we're talking about now in my program is sort of defining or talking about how do we even define stakeholders and rights holders and how are they different and how genuine is the process of consultation in different working groups. So I think in my experience personally, it's always an opportunity to learn. I don't think we'll ever truly reach a point where we've completed this work. I think it's an ongoing process and it's very interesting to talk to people like you that work with this all the time. Another question that I have about the interdisciplinarity of your work and your education is as a student in the sort of quote unquote pipeline of undergraduate degree to master's, potentially beyond, like in a PhD, I'm really curious in your career path that has led you to work in government, academia, and industry. Fishery science can sometimes imply careers in research or policy and sort of funnel people or give the impression of funneling people into a certain industry per se. But you certainly know that there's space for much more than that. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you were able to sort of bounce around and find out what really stuck for you and get these experiences across all of these different disciplines under the umbrella of fishery science. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that because I would love to give a shout out to my PhD supervisors, Joe Brown and Ian Fleming and Pierre Pepin, and in particular, Pierre, we had a very honest conversation fairly early on in my degree, which was about other opportunities. And he told me to make sure that I put as many tools as I could in my toolbox and really helped me find a lot of other opportunities to explore. And I would strongly encourage people who are pursuing their work right now at the undergraduate or graduate level to really make sure that you're looking up and around for opportunities to put tools in your toolbox. If possible, if you do have a mentor, be they your academic supervisor or someone else, I would strongly recommend that you ask them for support in this. I have found that people are happy to provide that support and having that honest relationship can be so, so good. And look around and see the other opportunities and don't hesitate to reach out also to other people who have interesting jobs that you see. I have also found that people are surprisingly generous with their time when people want to know more about that kind of a job. And so you can reach out either through your network or just directly. So if you see someone speaking at an event, if you read about them in the paper, it looks like their job is really interesting. Ask them if they'll go for coffee. One of the best pieces of advice I got in my undergrad from a mentor that I looked up to the whole time I was at UMB was even if you think you have everything figured out, put your feet through as many different doors and try to get involved in as many different opportunities as you can, 
even if you think that's the last thing on earth you would want to do. And when I got that advice, I hated it. I was like, no, my whole life is planned. Like I know everything. It's fine. And then did a complete 180 from what I thought I was going to do. And like you said, I love that you talked about putting tools in your toolbox because working even on projects or with initiatives that you don't think have an application to what you want to do. I can almost promise there will be skills and applications that you can sort of tease out of everything you do that will serve you later on. So as unwilling as I was to hear that advice at 18 years old, it has paid off oh so very much. You know, there's some other advice that is really hard to hear that people, maybe if they hear it now and then again and again, they'll, they'll bring it on board. It can seem like you don't have nearly enough time to do the work that you're already planning to do as part of your academic pathway but you will never have as much of an opportunity to experiment with other skill sets or to access training as you do right now while you're on your academic journey. There is so much incredible training out there, either through your university, through MyTax, or through, there are so many different ways. And you, those are certifications that some of them will like, you will have those for life if you do those certifications now. And I know it can seem so hard because you're like, I'm already studying so much. I'm already doing so much. But I strongly encourage people to take a look around for those kind of opportunities. It's easy speaking as someone that's a student right now and sort of feeling that pressure of, oh, I need to do this assignment. I'm studying for this. To forget that universities can be ecosystems where you're surrounded by professionals across so many different disciplines. And like you said, going back to taking time to chat with people or trying to make those appointments for networking and professional development, it's such a cool opportunity to be basically at the intersection of, or this hub of like social scientists and natural scientists and statisticians and just everyone doing so many cool different projects. I know that I started consuming various forms of media, including the fisheries podcast, as I'm a young student who is starting to approach that sort of fork in the road that can either lead to potentially a PhD or moving into the workforce or just kind of a big question mark that says what's next. For both me and some of our other listeners who may find themselves in the same boat, pardon the pun, do you have any advice for young professionals looking to find what sticks out for them as they begin to make big decisions and see what's out there? And I know we sort of just touched on this a bit, but if there's anything else that you can throw out to eager young minds like myself, I'd love to hear it. Personally, I love reading Harvard Business Review. That's a weird one. And they have some really great podcasts as well. Some really interesting and different perspectives. As an ecologist, I also find it very entertaining because ecology pulls very heavily from traditional economics. So there's a lot of overlap, actually, in a lot of the information they're talking about in the Harvard Business Review. So that's always kind of a fun perspective. I also love the Octo webinars. Just Google Octo webinars. They're really great. And there are some really great newsletters out there as well, like the Science Magazine newsletter that comes out that I subscribe to, the Ocean Networks Canada newsletter, the Ocean Frontier Institute newsletter. Um, I subscribe to UBC. Like, you don't have to go to other universities in order to subscribe to their newsletter. Along the reading sort of train of thought, something that you and I have in common is a love for reading and particularly inhaling books almost as quickly as we can find them, so I'm told. So are there any reading recommendations, aside from newsletters, that you may have for listeners who are looking to learn more about collaboration, specifically in the context of fishery science and truth and reconciliation? I mean, read, you read the call to action for reconciliation, that would be a good step. And though that's available online or little free booklets, I think that'd be the one I would go to there is to make sure you actually do read those, reflect on those, 
And one of the things that is, I think, very valuable is to think about which ones have the most meaning for you. I love that you mentioned reflection because as such a fast reader, taking that time to sit with it and to reflect on it and not just digest as much as you possibly can, especially under the umbrella of truth and reconciliation is such an important thing. You know, I'll also throw out there as well. I really enjoyed Pam Palmiter's book, Warrior Life. That one's a good one too. I was about to ask, in addition to that, are there any good books just in general that you've read lately and would recommend? Because I'm always looking for a new read, even if it's not about fishery science. Well, I have a couple of business books that I read and reread and read and reread. So if you're considering getting into the business side of things, Gino Wickman's Traction is literally open on my desk right now. And earlier this morning, I had Open on My Desk Scale by David Finkel. Those are the two business books that we go back to all the time. And... Other books that I mean, really, honestly, I read a lot of books that are not about work. I have just bought Remarkably Bright Creatures and I'm eager to crack into it. And it's basically, I want to do it justice here in the little elevator pitch. I don't know if you read it, but it's basically about a female detective that's trying to crack. I can't remember if it's like a murder mystery or like a fraud investigation, but there's something big going on. And basically the key to the entire investigation is an octopus because they're so intelligent and sentient, which leads into another whole debate about like, what's the threshold of sentience and farmed and aquaculture animals. So my life is revolving around octopi right now. And I kind of love it. You know, I read an article in the conversation about octopi and it gives you little news bites too, which is really great. So I get it in my inbox and I can read just the headline and the five sentences and then decide if I'm going to read the rest of the article, which even then are not that long. And they had one about farming octopi. And the title was, should we be farming octopi? And I was like, as soon as I read that, I was like, no, we definitely should not be. We probably shouldn't be eating them either. I'm not sure if I'm ready to make that transition yet, but I have to say it did give me major pause and I probably should do some more reflection on that. One of the main arguments was like, they're so smart. They're so sentient. Like they're so smart. Why could we even consider eating them? But there's huge ecological effects of farming octopi. There's cultural effects. Like what if this food is like shark fin? Some people in the world is hugely culturally important. The same way that we eat turkey. Some people in areas of the world are like, why is this such a huge cultural thing for North Americans? I don't get it. And there's huge ethical debates, of course, over what is the threshold and how do we quantify sentience within aquaculture animals? And how is it different from terrestrial farming and the aquaculture of the something like 550 other species that we eat? I eat farmed mollusks and bivalves all the time. You think it's a simple yes or no question kind of at face value. And the more you tease it apart, the more you're like, this spans just about every discipline of research that I can think of right now. So quite the octopus conundrum that we've discovered today. And to continue with my line of questioning, the term fisheries management can imply that humans are attempting to manage both fishery structures and systems as well as fish themselves, which I think plays nicely into the sort of aquaculture and farming conversation that we've had. A joke that I've heard you crack before is that fish don't care about borders or human desires. And I've also often heard that natural resource management is more about managing people than the actual resources themselves. And to that end, I'm wondering if you have any comments based on your expertise regarding the management of people in order to facilitate the effective management of resources. Yeah, I would double down on that managing of people is actually what you're doing there. 
And that is also terrifying, I think, for a lot of us who were raised with a scientific tilt because we thought that we could go and hide in a lab or in the field and not really deal with people. Unfortunately, that is definitely not the answer. It is not going to help if we just hide from the people. We really need to engage with the people. <laughs> Use our people skills to engage with the people because that is absolutely what fisheries management is actually all about. And that's a hard answer for a lot of people to take. In terms of how to deal with people, it's something I have absolutely built my career on, strangely enough, as an introvert who would really like to be left alone with a book all day. It is really about understanding other people. And that's one of the reasons you mentioned earlier how I've worked in a lot of different industries. And I've done that quite deliberately so that I can develop my empathy better because that is the underpinning of how we work with other people. If we can understand why people are doing what they're doing, then you can get to a solution. And I think the way for many of us in a sort of a scientific tilt to start really working on that is to activate our curiosity. We are curious people if we're engaged in science, or at least I hope you are. So if you're engaged in science, you know, this whole discovery piece, if you can turn that scientific lens onto people and that curiosity about people and trying to understand what motivates and drives them, then you can start to have a really productive conversation where we can work together to solve our problems. I have one last question of my own for you, Dr. Morton. If you could sum up your role as a collaborator across government, academia, and industry in the marine sector, and as a scientist, a manager, and a communicator, in just one word, what would that word be and why? I think it's listener. And I think it's listener because of exactly what we were just talking about. If I can build on listener a little bit, there's you know the observer piece as well, which is, again, trying to understand and see how the pieces are moving so that we can work together better. As early as I think even high school, in my personal experience, have taught formally about what active listening means. And it's listening to understand and going back to that reflection piece to reflect and to try to apply what other people say to your own life and not just to respond. And I think that that is a trap that a lot of people and myself included have fallen into before. And I think that empathy and active listening and all of these pieces really do come together to facilitate the best form of open communication. And I think that this has definitely been a learning experience for me and seeing the overlap between active listening and empathy and fishery science isn't necessarily an immediate connection that people would make, but I think it's so important. And like you said, to reach, I don't know about consensus because consensus can be a tricky thing, especially with the more people are involved, but at least consent Empathy is certainly needed, especially as fishery science and fisheries management and climate change and all of these different terms and situations are just so rapidly evolving around us. So I have good news. The toughest part is over. You've successfully run the gauntlet of my questions. Now we get to hear your final five, which is a group of five last questions that each guest who joins us on the fisheries podcast get asked. So starting off nice and easy. Number one. What is your favorite fish? So easy, lumpfish, especially baby lumpfish. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? My favorite memory from my career so far is working with the Indigenous delegation to Ocean Obs 19 to deliver a declaration to UNESCO, the Ahahanua, which is the Coastal Indigenous Peoples Declaration on their rights with regards to oceans. And that was just such an unbelievable privilege 
to work with that group, to support that group, which was my number one role was just supporting. And I love doing that. It's really, it's what our whole business is built on is supporting. And to share that as well, I brought my then seven-year-old daughter with me and my 63-year-old mother then. And it was also very life-changing for them to see that and to experience and understand. My daughter, obviously, you know, she's in that formation sponge age. It was great. But my mother was like forever changed by that because she really connected in a way that a lot of people in her generation have struggled to connect with what's going on there. She was like, I get it. So it seems as though you kind of already have this figured out. You may be living this, but what is your dream job? Oh, darn straight. This is it. So if money was not an issue, what is a project that you would love to work on? International Ocean Research Coordination. So the reason I say International Ocean Research Coordination is because the way that we manage our oceans is a real challenge with regards to funding. Nobody wants to pay for the high seas and nobody wants to pay for managing international collaboration. But in fact, that is absolutely what we need because again, the ocean does not care about the borders we have drawn on the map. It does not care about the 200 mile limit and things are changing. I saw a social media post the other day and somebody had said, maybe we wouldn't have a healthcare crisis or maybe we wouldn't have this political issue if we weren't paying for phytoplankton research. And a researcher that does research in this field was like, joke's on you, I don't get funded either. It's not my fault. And it was just like a humorous sort of take on my opinion, a flawed perspective on the role of ocean science. Oh, I mean, like, bring it back here, though, for a second. I gotta interrupt you. Phytoplankton, do you like breathing? The ocean ecosystem collapses, so do we. Full stop. We like living, so let's do it. So finally, if there was one point or principle that you would like listeners to take away from hearing you speak today, what would that be? Back to your point earlier, it is about people. And that's, again, a tough one for us. I think a lot of scientists to take on board and accept, but people are really what is going to make the change. And in order to work with people and to move people along to where we need to be, we need to have those interdisciplinary skills. So Dr. Morton, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to hear you speak about your passions and your career, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing our discussion as much as I did partaking in it. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how should they go about doing so? Well, you could start by Googling uh, KES, that's Kilo Echo Sierra, Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N, and probably there aren't that many hits you're going to get on that. They have a pretty good presence on the internet right now. And if you're feeling like that's a struggle, then you could always go to Pisces RPM. That's P-I-S-C-E-S-R-P-M.com. And that's our website. I would recommend a Pisces RPM deep dive anyway. So if you would like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email through feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Reed Sutherland. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, people matter.